There was a, a race in ancient Greece in which all of the participants in the race during the Olympics would begin the race with torches. And each one of them would begin with a torch and the torch would be lit. And they would run for a long distance. And the goal was to be the person who could light the fire for the Olympics. But the challenge of this race was this. They had to run the race with the fire lit. They could go really fast, but if the fire went out, they lost the race. The goal of the race was to finish with your fire still lit. The goal of the race was to finish with your fire still lit. And in many ways, the writer of the book of Hebrews has this longing for his friends. The writer of the book of Hebrews wants his friends to see that it is ultimately about them finishing with their fire still lit. It's about them finishing in faith. It's about them finishing in love. It's about them persevering and enduring in faith because it's not about how they begin. It's about how they finish. Now, I know the lives we live. I know the stresses and the strains that we face. I know what it's like for the kids to make you crazy. I know what it's like for your job to be pressing you to such a degree that you don't know what to do. You may be in school right now and your, your studies are just pounding you. You may be in an environment that is very difficult. And it's in these times that we see the reality of the faith that we have. It's in these times that we see what we're really working with. And the message of scripture, the message of this text to every Christian is to lean in to an enduring faith, to take hold of the realities that are ours through our union with Christ and to endure. We all need the message of endurance, friends. You know why? Because here's the deal. You may be doing well right now, but you do not know what's coming down the road. You don't know what trials and troubles you're going to face. You don't know what kind of hardships you're going to come into. But you don't wait for the rain to start pouring down on you before you put up the umbrella. You must stock your heart with the good news of God's faithfulness. You must prepare yourself and stabilize yourself. You must sink roots into our faith, into God, so that you can endure. And so... As we come to our passage for this morning, we are coming off of the heels of Hebrews chapter 11, as we covered it last week. We saw the legacy of faith. We saw the way that faith was expressed through the community of God through time. He was encouraging us and his audience to pay attention, to, to look at that faith. He illuminates this faith so that we will imitate that faith. He says, imitate this faith. But this morning, we go from glimmers of faith to the paradigm of faith. And he gives us this paradigm of faith and a new perspective on the trials that we're going to face. So that, those are our two points this morning. We're going to see the paradigm and the perspective that you must have if you will have enduring faith. Do you want your faith to endure? Do you want to be found in the faith 
when you're 80. If you're 80, do you want to be found in the faith until you take your last breath? I do. I want y'all to want that too. And so we must look at the paradigm. As I said, last week, we considered the legacy of faith. He illuminates faith by way of pictures. He doesn't just give you a dictionary description of faith. He gives you people. He shows you faith lived and embodied by failing saints who had even a mustard seed-sized faith, but their faith saw them overcome. And he says to them, I want you to imitate that faith. That's why he lays it down. In order to help them to embody this faith, to live into this faith, he gives them pictures that show them that this life of faith is possible. All right? Now, he moves from that legacy of faith to the ultimate paradigm of faith. He doesn't leave them without direction. He calls them to imitate faith, to imitate the faith of the the legacy But now he's showing them the direction. How do you do that? How do you lean into this faith? Verse 1. How do you endure in this life of faith? Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You see, he's referring back to chapter 11. Since we have this legacy of the saints, this cumulative demonstration of what faith is able to endure. Since we have this picture, this testimony to God's trustworthiness through the ages, let us also lay aside every weight and sin and let us run with endurance. It's a picture. He's grabbing this illustration of a race. And in the ancient times, you know, people wore long flowing garb and you could not begin to run without getting tripped up unless you took off the garb. You would have to lay these things aside. He's saying you have to lay your people pleasing Aside, You have to lay your fear of man aside if you want to run this race. You may even have to lay aside some good things that have become distracting things if you want to run this race. You have to run this race. Do you want to run this race? Well, this is the long distance race. If you want to do that, you must lay aside these things. But the primary means by which we endure in this life of faith, look at this text, The means by which we run, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In this text, what we see is that Jesus is not only the object of faith, but Jesus shows us what faith looks like. He lives the life of faith. He's not only the object of faith, he's the subject of faith. We're not only saved by the faithfulness of Jesus, we're saved by the faith of Jesus. Because Jesus showed us what it looks like to trust God. Jesus showed us what it looks like to trust the Father. He goes from the faint glimmers, right? The the cumulative impact, all of the saints through time. And then he comes to the pinnacle and he says, this is what faith looks like. Jesus. Look to Jesus. If Jesus had given up his faith in the Father in the face of adversity... Well, we would remain in ruin. You realize that? We're saved by his faith. It's it's a faith we should imitate because it's the faith that brings life. If Jesus had given up his faith in the Father's justice to angrily curse his false accusers, then then we we would have no gospel. 
Do you see? He's trying to elevate the beauty of lived faith through Jesus. He's trying to show you the faith that you should lay hold of for yourself. If Jesus allowed opposition to intimidate him and silence his voice of truth, then we would remain in our deadly ignorance. Do you see? He's about to lay down a paradigm of cruciformity. Cruciformity. That means cross-shaped. The Christian life, discipleship, is the cruciform life. Do you know what Jesus does? He lives the life of faith and endures for the benefit of the other. That's the life to which we're called. He laid down his privilege and his rights so that he could bless and benefit those who were ground under oppression. That's the life to which we're called. Do you see it? When we look at the faith of Jesus, in our circles, we, we talk a lot about Jesus as Redeemer, as we should. And we tend to shy away from Jesus as, as the one we should imitate but we ought to. We shouldn't shy away from that. It's not either or, it's both and. Jesus is not only our redeemer, he's also our example. That's good news because we're not left without the the framework or the, 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 the picture of what beautiful faith looks like. As Jesus was arrested under false pretenses, he endured As he was falsely accused and unjustly condemned to die, he endured. As he was flogged and scourged and mocked, he endured. And at the pinnacle of his sufferings, as he was surrounded by the darkness of evil and attacked by the hatred of humanity, he endured. Remember, he's talking to a group of Christians who are struggling to bear up under the disapproval of society. He's talking to a group of Christians who are being shamed because of their profession. And so what he's showing them is that Jesus did not buckle, and you don't have to buckle either. The same spirit that Jesus had, you have. He has given you his spirit. You don't have to buckle under this. Faith can endure. Faith can endure. Picture it. How did Jesus endure? Look at the text. Verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Check it out. Jesus had the jeering crowds beside him. He had the violent soldiers behind him. He had the heavy cross upon him. It was like the ground beneath him would soon begin to quake and the sky above him would soon become dark. But he had joy before him. For the joy before him, he endured. For the joy of pleasing his Father in heaven, he endured. For the joy of setting his people free, he endured. For the joy of restoring this world to newness, he endured. For the joy of ending evil and injustice, he endured. For the joy of reuniting his divided people, he endured. And aren't you glad he did? He considered the shame of the cross to be of little concern. And now he sits enthroned at the right hand of God. Do you see what faith inherits? Do you see that the message of the text is as it has gone for Jesus? So it will go for you. You must endure in faith. You may be under a heavy cross right now, 
But on the other side of that cross will be your resurrection and your ascension and your, your seating at the, at the Father's side in his presence. You will be brought near to God. Amen. You must endure. Jesus is the paradigm of enduring faith. And all those who are running this race with a plan to make it to the finish line must look to him. Verse 3, that's why the writer tells these friends, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This text is showing us the essence of discipleship. It's to be like Christ is to bear a cross. God has had many children. There's an old school writer who said this. God has had one child without sin, but he's never had a child without suffering. Even Jesus had to endure. There are many variations of faith that propose that you will have everything. Money, you will be popular, people will like you, but you got to have strong faith. And the reason why you don't have those things is because you don't have strong faith. You will have every single solitary healing. Every ailment of your body in this life will be made whole. That, that's their vision of faith. But I want you to see that the writer of Hebrews is laying out the pinnacle of faith. And what he chooses to highlight is his afflictions and his endurance in the face of those afflictions and his joy overcoming the oppositions that he faced. His ability to weather the shame that was being heaped on him for his profession that's what he's calling us to. That's what he's calling us to. The, re, the religion of Jesus is the religion of the cross. And there never was a true Christian who did not have a cross. That's what we're saying. Every true Christian has a cross to bear. Every true Christian will at some point come into these kinds of conflicts. But we are called to an enduring faith. We must endure for the joy set before us. Look at how the text goes. He says, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured. So when we look to Jesus and we see him enduring because of the joy that was ahead of him, we too can look ahead to the joy and endure. Do you see what he's, he's teaching us how faith is sustained? We must endure for the joy set before us. We must endure for the joy of seeing the Father's smiling face. We, we must endure for the joy of entering into a tearless, matchless, sinless world. We must endure for the joy of seeing our neighbors, our coworkers, and our children come with us. We must endure for the joy of seeing goodness spread through this neighborhood. We must endure. For the joy of living faithfully with our spouses till the end, we must endure. We are called to be an enduring people, a people of enduring faith. We can endure verbal assaults because God will one day say to us, well done. We can endure. We can endure misrepresentation because one day we will stand and watch the King of Kings represent us to the Father. We can endure. We can endure physical afflictions because we run toward a resurrection and into glory. We can endure. And one of the ways in which we endure is by changing our perspective 
on our afflictions, which brings us to our second point. The perspective. He's given us the paradigm. He has shown us how Jesus endured. He has showed us how the faith of Jesus was able to combat the oppositions and the afflictions. He was shielded by his faith. He really and truly experienced the suffering, but it was his faith that was able to weather those things because he saw joy at the end. He saw joy at the end. The trials and temptations of your life may be tough right now. But there's joy on the other end. He shows them the paradigm, but the perspective is this. Look at what the writer does in verses 4 through 17. In verses 4 through 17, he takes an approach to their current trials, and he shows them that their current trials are to be perceived as as the fatherly discipline of the Lord. He's, he's, He's helping to reorient them to what they're experiencing right now. Now, I want you to keep something in mind. This was an oppressed people. They were a small, marginalized group of people. They, they, they didn't have cultural power. They, they, were, they were really vulnerable to the, to the government of Rome. They were vulnerable. But to these people, he says, I want you to see your afflictions as the fatherly discipline of God. And every true child experiences afflictions. He's trying to reframe things for them. He's trying to, he's trying to put, he's trying to put a different spin on it for them so that they will, they will live into the struggle rather than recoil from it. Now, yesterday I was talking with Vanessa at the dinner table about this second point. I was I was talking with her. She's like, so, so what are you going to do for the second point? I was like, well, I was thinking about talking about discipline. Uh, and as soon as I said discipline, my man Lorenzo, he was face buried in the food. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden he goes, and he looks up and he has food all over his face. And he's looking around. He heard the word discipline. And he's like, uh, did I do something? Who did something? Something's about to go down. And I said, man, no, no, no. Me and mommy are talking. And he's like, but he was looking like this, you know, he's eating his food, looking up. He's like, wait, now I might have to run out of here or something. I think that many of us, when we hear the word discipline, are like my man Lorenzo. Uh, we recoil a little bit at it. It's hard to think about this idea of God's fatherly discipline. Because just, just think about it. When hardships come into your life, is your first instinct to say, I thank God for his fatherly discipline? No. No. We're like children. You don't love me anymore. Right? We've, we've been through that process, right? Everyone, and it breaks your heart, right? If you've, ever, if you've ever had your children say to you, after you, when you're disciplining them, I just don't think you love me anymore. And, and it, you're tempted to say, this is a bunch of melodrama. I think you're trying to avoid this thing. But it, it is a little bit heartbreaking, Right? You're like, how could you possibly believe that, that I don't love you because I am trying to form your life so that you will live a beautiful life, so that you will live the good life, the life of faith and love? How could you possibly think that my attempts at disciplining you reveal somehow a lack of love? No, this is actually an indication of my love. I often tell my children, if I didn't love you, I would let you ruin yourself. I would let you go and just 
destroy your life. I would let you make bad decisions and I wouldn't correct you. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't be involved. But because I'm involved, I want you to know that it's, it's, it's because I love you. And in a similar way, what the writer's trying to show these friends is that the hard times that they're facing, these, these, these are instruments in, in the father's hands to shape his children. Do you remember earlier on in the letter when, when he was exalting Christ in chapters one and two? He said, uh, I'm going to make your enemies into your footstool. And you remember what that picture was, right? Whenever one king conquered a, a region, all of the other kings who were opposing would have to come and bow down his, at his feet and say, I'm at your service. And it's essentially saying that every trial they're facing, every opponent that is after them is in the service of God. And he is able to make even their enemies be a blessing to them. He's, able, he's, even, he's even able to make the enemies serve his purposes. I can make your enemies produce the fruit of righteousness in your life. I can make your enemies shape holiness in your life. That holiness that you need to enter into glory. That's the kind of power I have. I can make dirty diapers turn into the fruit of righteousness. Come on, somebody. I need a witness in here. I can make slow metro turn into patience. And that one got too, too, too close, right? That was too close. <laughs> I can make difficult coworkers, yeah, turn in to maturity in your life. Do you see what I'm saying? When you begin to look around at all of the adverse circumstances, you need, you need to appreciate the, the possibility, the potentiality that God is actually doing this for your good to mature you, to grow you, to humble you, to make you prayerful, to make you dependent. Because you know what? Without fatherly discipline, we would be content to make many a journey without him. Without fatherly discipline, we would go many prayerless days. Without fatherly discipline, our patience would be lacking deeply on many occasions. Without fatherly discipline, we would not have the capacity to learn to love enemies. It is fatherly discipline that is meant to draw us near to the heart of God, that is meant to sustain us. Through discipline, God gathers truant children. Through discipline, the Lord retrieves wanderers. Through discipline, he roots the shallow and humbles the proud. Through discipline, he makes the foolish wise and, and he makes the fearful bold and he fills the empty. He only strips the fig leaves in order to clothe you in the beauty of virtue. That's why he disciplines you. Through discipline, the Lord replaces evil with goodness. Through discipline, the Lord replaces self-centeredness with Christ-centeredness. Through discipline, he replaces your pride with prayer and humility and gratitude. Ask anyone who has experienced the discipline of physical affliction and has come out on the other side of that. There is a different way in which they engage the world. There's a different way in which they move about in the world. I'm humbled by those who regularly experience physical suffering and remain faithful in it, joyful even. This is, this is discipline that the Lord uses. 
And here's the deal. Do you know why he brings discipline in your life ultimately? Because he wants to lift up Jesus in your heart. He wants to lift up Jesus in your eyes. He wants to bring the dark circumstances around you so that Christ will gleam in them. He brings the storm of circumstances so that you will find Christ to be an adequate refuge. He stirs up the storm so that you will know that the one who is on the boat with you is able to speak over those waves and bring peace and stillness. He is desirous of bringing Christ into a, a greater estimation in your heart. He wants you to see that Jesus is a companion in your loneliness. He's a balm in your wounds. He is an anchor when the current is against you. And the writer is showing his friends that the world may reject you, but the Father receives you. The world may hate you, but Christ loves you. The world may curse you, but the Spirit has blessed you. Your own heart may accuse you, but Christ is your advocate. Let discipline drive you to the Father. Let discipline drive you to the Son. Let discipline drive you to lean upon the Spirit. Let it take you to God. Let discipline have its work in you. This week, I want you to look to Jesus. And what does that mean? I think, I think it means something like this. I think it means attending to Scripture, to prayer, and to the sacraments, those ordinary means of grace, with a sacred imagination. It's not enough to say, Jesus suffered, so I must. Can you imagine the drops of sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane, bearing up under the curse, bearing up under the pressure of giving in, and yet he says, not my will, but your will be done. Can you put yourself there? Can you put yourself in that garden? To behold him, to behold obedience and the beauty of faith with your imagination and let that touch you and inspire you and motivate you and drive you so that when you are tempted to say, not your will, but my will, you will remember the faith of Jesus, the faith that saved you, and you will return back to him that love and that faith and that, that trust. Sacred imagination, y'all. Sacred imagination, when you pray, you aren't just speaking into the air. Do you, in your sacred imagination, imagine God present with you right there, communing with him as friend with friend? Do you imagine God looking intently? You know how some people are good listeners and they just look you right, right in the eye and they're right with you? And the way they engage you, it makes you just want to keep on talking? And you don't realize that you're not very interesting, but they're just very kind and good listeners, right? Maybe that's just me. All right. And then you've been around people who, when you talk to them, it just seems like they're in a million different places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes they may have a child on their arm, which is understandable, right? Do you imagine when you pray that God is intently interested in hearing your requests and hearing your concerns and your afflictions and hearing what's on your heart, that he loves you and wants to hear from you and wants to commune with you? Do you imagine that? Because if you do, I want you to know that your imagination falls infinitely short of the reality of how deeply interested and involved he is in your life and in your concerns. Look to Jesus with sacred imagination. 
I want you also to consider the joy set before you. And I want you to begin to fill that out. The better that you can fill that out, the more, you, the more able you will be to embrace an enduring faith. Joy is one of the most important yet underrated uh, virtues in the Christian life. How will you endure for the joy set before you? Well, then it, se- it seems to me that you must have a pretty strong command of that joy. Maybe you write it down. What is ahead of you? What is ahead of you as a Christian? Christian, what do you believe? I belong. I'm accepted. I'm headed for glory. I'm headed for the promise. I'm headed for the new heaven and the new earth. I'm headed for communion with God uninterrupted by sin. I'm headed for the tearless day. I'm headed. Consider the joy set before you. Take perspective on your trials. Ask yourself this question. Are there, consider the trials right now that you're facing. What hardships are you facing? What difficulties are are you bearing up under right now? Okay. Get those in your head and then ask the question. Could there be vices in your life that God's trying to take away from you through this discipline? Are there virtues that God is trying to build into you through these trials? It's not about trying to interpret providence. It's about looking at the possibility. God is able to work this virtue into me, and he's able to remove this vice from me through this trial. I'm going to lean on him in prayer for that. I'm going to look to him and expectantly come to God for that change. Lastly, I want you to think about how you can encourage someone in our community with this text. How can you encourage someone to endure? You know, sometimes... The way the community works is when you can't see the joy in your own eyes set before you, you need a friend to come along and tell you about the joy that is before you. You need someone to come in and testify to you where you're headed if you endure in faith. You need someone to come along and tell you about the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. You need someone else to testify sometimes when you can't see it. Why don't you be that witness? for a friend in here, letting them know that they're not alone, that they're headed for joy, and that this trial is fatherly discipline that God will use to mature them, to grow them, to bring about the fruit of righteousness and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let us be a people that leans into this. Let us be a people of enduring faith that perseveres through the trials and has the right perspective on our father's discipline of his children and his care for us. Because the end of the flourish, at the end of this text, he just does a recapitulation of everything he's covered. Remember, we're new covenant people. And we're headed to the reality which was only shadowed in the old. That's where we're headed. That's the joy set before us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless, bless us as we meditate and reflect on what you have taught us in Scripture. And we pray that you would help us to open our hearts, help us to allow our lives to be shaped by these things, help us to take these things to heart, to take these things to prayer, help us to repent and to believe and to run the race. Help us, Lord, to run this race and to end this race with our fire still lit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.